Real variety for your work day. This is season three of the Fat Doctor podcast and I'm your host, Dr. Asha Lamy. We're going to be talking all things related to weight stigma, fat phobia and fat activism over the next few weeks and months. I'll be joined by a host of regular guests as well as some experts across the fat activism sphere. So all you need to do now is sit down, relax and listen in. Welcome back to episode seven. I am with my best friend Keisha <laughs> not my friend my best friend Keisha ever. Uh, ever BFF yes my BFF uh I talk about her all the time so you should know who she is by now and if you don't you've not been paying attention to me um Keisha is my best friend <laughs> she lives in Texas uh just well, kind of in Houston, right? Like it's it's a suburb, yeah. but it is it's, it's yeah. Houston. We'll call it Houston for those who don't, you know, know the intimacies of the Texas Texan um, <laughs> map. Then lives in Houston in Texas, um, and um, well, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> she's my best. Okay, she makes amazing cakes, and she's also the smartest person I know. Um, and I put that in the, the correct order. She makes amazing cakes <laughs> and she's the smartest person I know. I agree with that order. It's the correct order. <laughs> the correct um, order. And I said, just before we were recording, I said, I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but we'll just turn it on and see what happens. I read a really good book, which I told you I read, by Jessica Wilson. And... Um, Really what I should have done is I should have brought the book upstairs to the room that I'm recording in so that I can look at all the highlighted bits and been like, oh, and she said this and she said that. But I didn't do that. So I've got to do it from memory. Um, (laughs) But it's the first book I've read that talks a lot about the black. It unapologetically talks about the black woman's experience. It is written by a black woman for black women about black women unapologetically anyone else that reads it and really everyone should read it it's an extremely good read but everyone else that reads it is basically um a fly on the wall or like a visitor that gets to sit and watch this conversation between black women or or black I say women you know she includes more than just cisgender women which is amazing but um but predominantly yeah black women femmes non-binary people um and it's amazing. And she talks about, she talks about a lot of things, but one of the things that really spoke to me was this idea of having to perform for whiteness um, and respectability politics and the exhaustion of being a black woman and just how you have to be on all the time. And so that really got me thinking, like, what what is life like? I mean, that sounds a bit that sounds a bit crass what life life like life life like if you're a black woman you do you hear what I'm trying to say do you hear what I mean okay so then I'll let you tell me what's what's just tell me you know you can represent the entire black woman experience because of course you can there's only one type you're a monolith all just whatever you say applies to everybody go ahead that's it the microphone is yours oh my god um let me see I completely understand 
<laughs> that, you know, that lot of questioning. Uh, let me see. Okay, so, yeah. The other day, my husband, Steve, was showing me a video of an Uber driver who, <clears throat> she was a food delivery driver. And she went into a restaurant. She basically initiated an altercation with the owner. Uh, because her app wasn't working correctly and he wouldn't give her the order because he had had theft issues before. So she leaves and comes back and this time she brings her boyfriend to intimidate the owner and then she pepper sprayed him. And so, you know, when you see things like that happen, you know that if you go to the comments, (laughs) what the comments are going to say, that every racist (laughs) and with internet access, going to come into the comments and they're going to lump all of us into one category mm-hmm. and they're going to say you know these people those people whatever names they come up with that are I probably can't say um they're going to say it they're going to basically strip us of our strip us of our humanity and say that we deserve the things that happened we don't deserve to be equal whatever they're going to say which we already knew. So you can automatically go know that as soon as you go to the comments, that's what you're going to see. And it's just like, you think that every decision you make is going to reflect badly on everyone else because it usually does. You know, you're not allowed to be just you, an individual, because the moment you make a devastating decision, it's going to reflect badly on everyone. And it's like, I'm one human being. When I was born, my birth certificate said I'm one person. There was no twins, anything else. I was a single birth. It's just me. But it's like, it's just tiring always being, I don't know, judged and blamed for something you had absolutely nothing to do with. It's it's really weird. And I guess, you know, I guess you just get used to it. I mean, you know what to expect, you know, that, you know, you have to behave a certain way to be treated a certain way. You can't, you don't get the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to come in correctly or I guess, you know, they say first impressions are everything, but sometimes you don't even get that. You mean, mm-hmm. all the cards are stacked, or, uh, stacked against you. So you just have to put on your game face and hope for the best. But it is... And then, of course, there's the angry black woman trope. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would have to say that one predated the Karen thing. And I don't know, I think the Karen thing is not a new phenomenon. It just, with social media, it became something that everybody got to see and experience. Because I'm sure there were stories of Karens long ago before cell phones mm-hmm. and everything else. But, you know. Obviously, there's much more prominent stories of the ghetto queens and things like that, the stereotypes of Black women, which, oddly enough, I discovered <laughs> the welfare queen that Reagan spoke of was actually not a Black woman. Mm. What a coincidence. But yeah, um, it's just, I guess you just, you know what's going to happen, so you do what you can to mitigate the effects. and. You just have to learn ways to work around it because it doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon. And 
I mean, it really does change your behavior. And I think some people either just go with it or you become nice to a fault Hmm. to keep from being labeled. Um, I know you can't let your hair down, so to speak. Uh, You know, then also that you you learn to code switch. So you appear appropriate at certain times. And then when you feel comfortable, like you can be your authentic self, you switch back to, you know, you take off the mask, basically. I guess it's like when you when you get up and you, you know, get ready, you're literally putting on a mask or a persona that may not be as authentic because you don't want to be judged, you don't want to be ridiculed, you want to be able to make a living and provide for yourself and your family. You want to be able to, I don't know, I don't know if you want to be accepted, but you want to be able to move within society without so much blowback so many waves, so many issues. You just want to just, just exist without mm. <laughs> problems. I mean, I guess it's not really possible because unfortunately, no matter how well you blend in, you don't really actually ever blend in. And you you physically cannot blend in, right? Like it's a, and I, and I guess, <laughs> you know, there are many people that hold marginalized identities I'm Jewish, for example, but you'd never know that by looking. I mean, maybe you could tell by the nose, but you wouldn't know. I could walk down the street and you wouldn't know I was Jewish. Uh, you know, I'm queer, but you wouldn't you wouldn't know. Like, how would you know unless I was, you know, being very sort of choose and you know, I can choose to turn it off if I want to. That's that's what I was saying. But you cannot literally cannot blend in. And and actually, I think, you know, when I'm when I'm walking down the street, for example, in a in, you know, in a crowded place. And I'm looking for my husband. I, one of the nice things is it's very easy to spot because he's just, he doesn't <laughs> blend in. Uh, but but and that's, I mean, we joke, but actually that's really like to be conscious all the time of the fact that actually you can't hide, like you, you cannot hide. You could, you, like you say, you can code switch and you can put on your face and your mask and smile and, you know, be, be everything that you can, but you can't really hide. And the moment you do something that is, you know, it doesn't have to be pepper spraying someone in the face. Like, you know, you can just be a little bit angry one day. You know, someone upsets you and you react angrily. Oh, angry black woman, you know, boom, that trope comes out. Or or you're wearing a skirt that is a perfectly appropriate leg, but not that there is such a thing as an appropriate leg, but you know what I mean? You, you're dressed the way you're dressed. People take one look at you and immediately Jezebel. Whereas someone else who maybe doesn't stand out as much wearing the same outfit, nobody looks twice. And um, you know, Jacqueline, uh, Jessica, Jacqueline, where do I get Jacqueline from? Jessica talks about the three um, tropes, classic tropes that black women are kind of like assigned, which is, you mentioned the angry, angry black women, um, the Jezebel and the, and the kind of the mammy kind of character. Um, and my fear. <laughs> do, do you think. I'll explain. Go on, explain. <laughs> No, go ahead. I, I'll explain my, my fear a little bit. No, tell me your fear. Like, I'm curious that I'm more interested in you. I guess because, you know, <clears throat> at the intersection of being fat and black, it's like, yeah, you know, you're afraid of being labeled that. Obviously, it has negative connotations. But I don't know. It's just, you know, everyone wants to feel attractive. That's just, that's life. You want to feel attractive to someone. And, you know, that stereotype that, you know, makes 
it almost like it robs fat black women even more so mm-hmm. of their attractiveness, their sexuality. And it's like, obviously we know that fat black women didn't start existing in the last hundred years or so. And they existed during slavery. And it's just like, I don't know. It's just, it's just another label to put on you. And it's just, just another way to limit you and to make you less than. And it's just like, because I'm at that intersection, I, I guess I never really thought of the angry black woman one too much because I learned <laughs> from my upbringing going to a school where I was one of maybe a couple of black kids in that, you know, in those classes, you know, I learned to uh, adjust my behavior to fit in. Um, the Jezebel trope, you know, I, I guess maybe I was safe from that because the way I tended to dress, you know, you, I was not very adventurous with my outfit. Um, more modest, as some people would call it, for, for the most part, obviously. I like to wear fun things in my youth, too. <laughs> not so much anymore, especially now that, you know, I've gotten older and heavier. But at this point in my life, the mammy one has become <laughs> my fear. Because it's like, geez, what else? Mm. <laughs> what else? <laughs> Mm. like what else are you going to come up with at each stage it's, it's a problem and it's like uh, okay <laughs> can't even can't even well obviously gated weight is a no-no and for women also aging is a no-no but it puts the two together it's like a lethal combination right but do you think that you know, because I was literally going to ask you that about the intersection of fatness and blackness and whether that kind of puts you in the mammy just because of the look, you know. Yeah. <laughs> when I think of the angry black woman and the stereotype of the angry black woman, I don't know if she has a shape, actually. But when I think about the Jezebel, I think because she's supposed to be sexy and and, and, mm-hmm. and sexually and alluring and, and men are supposed to be attracted to her. I guess in my very fat phobic mind, I assume she's thin or I assume that she's spelt or curvy or, you know, do you know what I mean? Like in my mind, I think that, but is she? And I, and I'm wondering whether like with those tropes, Jessica is self self-professed thin, you know, <laughs> she's not, she's not fat. So I wondered if it, you know, with those three, what you were explaining about, you know, going through life, you know, you were you were modestly dressed. Were you modestly dressed because you didn't feel like you could show off more of your body? Like, do you think that has something to do with your weight or do you think that the two weren't connected? It does. Um, from a young age, we were kids. I didn't want to wear swimsuits. <laughs> and this was mm-hmm. even before developing, you know, uh, sexual attributes, before boobs and everything. Even yeah. though I've, I've, you know, I was always heavy. So, you know, I had bigger legs, bigger thighs, a bigger backside, even before I had any chest. So I was always self-conscious, obviously. When you're told that you should be, that there's something wrong with you, that, you know, you don't fit in, that you should look a certain way and you don't, you know, you just want to cover everything up and hide. Like, you know, I didn't do short skirts. I didn't want people to see my legs <laughs> because they were fat. You know, I got to the point where I didn't want people to see my arms. They were fat. And it's just, it definitely had, it was me trying to hide. 
because didn't want to be seen. Because, I mean, if there's something wrong with you, you obviously don't want to play up that characteristic. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't want people to see it. You don't want to notice it. And you think you're hiding it. But I've discovered (laughs) that my legs were still fat, even in the pants. So it's it's not that I was hiding them per se, (laughs) but I thought I was. You know, I I was doing what I thought I could to protect myself. But... um, yeah, but you you're covering them, right? And I and I wonder if that's kind of like you know, okay, I could if I could hide them, I would hide them. But the next best thing is to just cover them up so that like at least I'm protecting myself a little bit. It's like a suit of armor, you know. Like I can, if it's not out there and on show, then at least like there's like a, a layer between me and you know everybody else. But it's you know I I. I but I think about the intersection of blackness and fatness and the fact that anti-fatness is anti-blackness. And I think I think this is a very well-established fact that that we as a society, a modern day society, became obsessed or you know started focusing on weights at the time when we were trying to oppress black people, especially after sort of slavery was abolished and we couldn't legally I mean we did like, for 100 years Pro, I know we did but but in, you know like we couldn't get free labor out of black people anymore and you couldn't just literally think you know treat them as less of a less than an animal because they all of a sudden you know were perhaps considered human beings you know maybe like the law considered them to be slightly human and um not not human enough to vote but you know like human enough not to own anymore and so mm-hmm. around that time you know we start finding other ways to dehumanize black people and I think that fatness was part of that and, and it has been ever since and it you know it's I wonder what it's like to have it's basically anti-fatness squared right it's anti-fatness times anti-fatness because you've got because they're both about race you know, and you know that it's racism. Sorry, it's racism squared. Actually, it's it's the anti-fatness, which is racism, and then it's the racism together. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that manifests, like in 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 your everyday life, like today or in the last week. Like, how do would you say that um, that has impacted you compared to either a thin white woman or even a fat white woman? Like, what's different for you? Hmm. I have to say, not that I don't, obviously it's not that I don't care what people think, but um, I guess my interactions with people right now are not as big as they used to be. But like, okay, I was thinking lately, some of the things I've done, like I filled out an application uh, for a job and mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously I was, I was denied the job. But one of my first thoughts is, do they know I'm fat? <laughs> no, that's weird, but do they know I'm fat? Is that why they denied me? You know, I mean, granted, I don't think it's my age. You know, I'm not that old. So I know there's ageism. So what is it? Do they know I'm fat? I know they know I'm Black because they can clearly see my name. Mm-hmm. And my name leaves no question and mm-hmm. no doubt about my race. You can, mm-hmm. you can pretty much assume what it is. Yeah. So it's like, what could be so wrong with me? What what did they pick up on? What did I not, you know, make anonymous enough? Mm. <laughs> a really weird thing. But um, 
it's just my, I guess, my big thing would be how we're treated medically mm. and I guess environmentally. Um, because that tends to be, I think, one of the more insidious and dangerous weapons used against us. Right. Because we can adapt in the workplace to mistreatment. We can modify our behaviors and adapt in other, in other settings so that we can assimilate and move more seamlessly. But when you're in a medical setting, you're at your most vulnerable mm-hmm. because you're expecting to get help that you can't get for yourself. There's nothing you can do to treat your illnesses. There's nothing you can do to treat yourself. Um, you have to go to someone with the knowledge to do that. So for me, I think that that is where I tend to notice because I'm just used to adjusting for every other occasion. It just becomes second nature. It's, I really don't, I don't think about it, I guess. You know, you just know when you go into a setting, who's going to be there, who, you know, that you're going to have to behave a certain way. You're going to have to dress a certain way, speak a certain way. Um, I guess, especially after growing up, uh, going through different, settings for school like you know predominantly white or you know ethnically mixed background such as that and I finally went to an HBCU for college and it just felt I don't want to say well yeah it felt familiar <laughs> because everyone there understood everyone there had been through the same thing everyone there could relate so it was very comfortable you know, even the professors knew they 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 spoke to us a certain way. They treated us a certain way. I had one professor say, you know, I teach. He taught at another university, which is predominantly white. He was like, I have to adjust my teaching, my curriculum, everything from one area to the other. Hmm. Um, so it's just. You just you learn to adjust. I don't really. I don't really think that much about it. Now, I do get more apprehensive mm-hmm. when I feel like I'm going to be in a situation from where I'm less safe, uh, where there's fewer of me there that does, you know, it me on, you know, puts me on edge a little bit. But I just, I what needs to be done. So I'd have to say that, yeah, in most settings, it doesn't, I mean, yeah, it's irksome, but I guess I just tolerate it because I really don't have the option at this point. Mm-hmm. But the most vulnerable I do f- feel, I guess, is within a medical setting where I feel like someone has actual power over me mm-hmm. in my life. And it's actually not in my control as much. So that can be quite scary. Um, you, you've said to yeah. me, um something along the lines of oh I have health anxiety I don't know you said something like that to me once and I remember going no no you don't have health anxiety you're simply reacting 
very normally to a situation in which you you literally know that actually your doctors are certainly not working in your best interest and, and there have been times when I have said to you Keisha I, th- I think your doctor is actually like he's this is dangerous now you have to see somebody else I'm worried about you you can't this isn't this can't go on I cannot believe your doctor is saying this to you and you know we have these conversations sometimes when I think this, this isn't possible it isn't possible for a medical professional to be this negligent but then there's another part of me that's like yeah it is because I think that actually the healthcare of black people especially black women in the United States and, and I'm sorry to say it but in the state of Texas like I love you but you live in Texas and I don't know I have very positive things to say about the Texas healthcare system that's me being nice <laughs> you know this um so so actually I I don't think you have health anxiety I I think you just legitimately should be worried about your health like and I and I don't know what to do when I when I when I feel that way because you know like I said you're my BFF and so I'm like I, I want to fix it like genuinely just want to fix it but also I understand that this isn't like what are you supposed to do this is like being stuck between a rock and a hard place and there is no solution. It's not hopeless I think sometimes and I was thinking the other day I was reading on Dr. Jennifer Lincoln on Instagram and you know she and Dr. Heather Abunda yeah were uh, they were actually in Texas uh, around they were you know campaigning and protesting against the overturning of Roe v. Wade and I don't know I haven't talked to a lot of people about the overturning of Roe v. Wade but I know honestly it it's pretty frightening uh for a lot of women because they're also now trying to make it in the state of Texas, where you can't mail or receive through the mail abortion pills. So they're trying to make it so that there's no remedy at all, while simultaneously making it so that in the process of miscarriage, which is medically abortion, uh, you can't get help for that. So it's just, it's hopeless because it's like, you know, some of us who have willingly had children had terrible complications mm-hmm. and we live in mortal fear that those complications could repeat and then leave our children motherless. Mm-hmm. And then for people to say that they are pro-life and they care about human life while simultaneously telling you, well, you know, yours doesn't particularly matter because, you know, you're already breathing. It just sometimes I wake up and I think is this really is the movie Matrix true is this like a simulation Mm. this can't be life people can't really be this way people can't really be I don't want to call names people can't really be this way like how does that even make sense you're willing to force women to endanger their lives because not all pregnancies go the way that we want them to. Mm-hmm. Not all pregnancies are results that we want. And even pushing past the unwanted pregnancies and going into pregnancies where, okay, we're fine. Since I'm forced to do this, since I'm forced to do it because I, I can't I can't get the help otherwise, and a complication arises. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in danger. I have it's just <laughs> 
you lose even more control mm-hmm. and you're already struggling because you already feel like you don't have any. And it's just like even more control is being taken away. Sure. And it's just, you're losing every day if something else gone. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't feel safe functioning as it is because you're a female in society or a woman in society. Um, and then you're black. So that's mm-hmm. another strike. And then you're fat. That's another strike. And now you're a person who can become pregnant and you know, you can't even choose that for yourself. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. I don't, it, it, it doesn't seem real a lot of times. Like, it's truth is stranger than fiction because mm. I never thought that we'd be at this point in our existence. Mm. It's just so, it's surreal. <laughs> the icing on the cake. They found an asteroid, apparently NASA did, <laughs> that they think has, I think, a one in 604 chance. Four oh four. I was reading this in the dark. My vision was the best of striking Earth. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> you, it just, it feels very <laughs> mad TV matrix sometimes. It's just, Wow. Okay. <laughs> life I, on Earth again. I didn't know about, I didn't, there's two things I didn't know. First of all, you didn't tell me about the job, which I'm upset about, but we'll talk about that off, off camera. And then the second thing is, I didn't need to know about the asteroid striking the Earth. You could have kept that to yourself. There are certain <laughs> things, you know, you can read it and be like, oh, that's terrible. But we don't need to know, Keisha. You can keep that to I yourself. Was like, I was like, okay, I was already thinking like, Oh gosh, the world is going bonkers. Yeah. And it's like, and I'm living to see it. I can't believe I'm seeing all this stuff. It just doesn't seem real. And then the asteroid thing, I'm like, we're really in a movie at this point. We're really in a movie. It's true. This isn't real. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we could be dead by the time this this comes out. It could be that could have been the, our extinction event could have happened. No, no, we have like 20 years. Oh, 20. <laughs> oh, fine. Do you know what? Let's all live like we've got 20 years left. Fine, that's me sorted. Um, eat all the cake you want, people. Twenty years, like even the diabetes ain't gonna get me in twenty years. I've got, we got time. It's fine. Um, okay, so I'm just now bowled away that we're gonna die in twenty years. <laughs> well, there's a one hundred six hundred and four chance, or four hundred and four. You can't even remember. And by the way, that's a big difference. Six hundred and four versus four hundred and four is a well, big the difference. Is the asteroid is supposedly the size of an Olympic swimming pool. So if it enters the atmosphere, it, it's probably going to fracture into smaller pieces. Oh my. Uh, I don't think it's like a dinosaur type asteroid. You know, the one that them out. You have, wa- you have wasted perfectly good time <laughs> and my nervous energy telling me about an asteroid that is going to break up in, in the atmosphere and basically going to rain down in the sea. I thought I you meant... want people to understand the level of fear, I feel, mostly. Okay, but, but, it, but <laughs> apart from that, we are living in a world that is just unbelievable. And every time... Every time I hear people speak now, I'm like, what what happened to common sense and reality? And, you know, like it, people will say things and I and I just I'm so shocked that they've said them. I don't really know how to respond to them. I was watching 
Um, and I, I, won't, I don't know who the coach is, but obviously is an American football coach. I don't know if you've seen this video where he's talking about, um, and forgive me because I don't know enough about American football, but uh, and notice I say American football because the rest of the world calls, fo- calls football. <laughs> he's just mouthing, neither do I. In the camera. <laughs> That's okay. But anyway, he said, and it's, it's done the rounds on social media. He's talking about picking uh, a quarterback and how he looks for, you know, two parents, you know, stable home, 3.5 GPA, uh, you know, a leader, leadership qualities. He basically describes uh, whiteness uh, he, without using the term white, but he does. He describes whiteness, you know, it, 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 it speaks of affluence and, you know, like a, you know, like a cookie cuts a house and, you know, gets his own car at 16 and lives in a suburban neighborhood and has, has all of those things and, you know, can lead our, our team to victory. And then he's talking, I guess, about like linemen, I think, I don't know, but anyway, the ones that are constantly having to get sacked and the ones that are basically doing all the heavy work, whoever they are, forgive me if you're an American football fan right now and go, well, shut up. Um, anyway. Yeah. Like, I think they're defensive linemen. Defensive linemen. Oh, okay. I think they're defensive linemen. Let's pretend that they are. Okay, but he's talking about them, and he's like single parent family. Uh, you know, uh, you know, just you know, one grew up with a mama. You know, poor, like, hungry, and like describe to me is describe. You you know, and I, it was so obvious what he was saying without saying it, and it made me feel so mad. And I watched that at the same time I was watching. Um, a program on Apple TV called The Problem with Jon Stewart. And actually this was last series, so it's a, a year old and I'm just catching up, but it was a program uh, <laughs> entitled The Problem with White People, which was great. Uh, and they were discussing the problem with white people and there was this guy on who was talking about, and this seems to be you know, in Fox News a lot as well, how uh, the problem the, the problem with black people is the lack of family. Uh, the fa- Have you heard this? This kind of the, you know, th- the family doesn't exist. Like, you know, the family is dissolving and all of this. Um, I'm going to say it, bullshit. Uh, terrible stuff. And I, I hear people saying this about black people. And I, I think you, you can't, you can't be serious. You can't seriously even be thinking that but definitely not saying it not because of political correctness but because that's that's so wrong and the stereotypes the stereotypes just absolutely blow my mind and these were articulate in the coach was black so it, it was like talking about people in a way that just made me think what does having two parents have to do with anything right what <laughs> what does that mean I do know about the quarterback situation. I think that tends to be a common uh, theme among American football quarterbacks. Uh, I know this, the team, Stephen, like the Texans, uh, they were criticized because, or one of his rights was they had what they call second and third string, which is like an alternate yeah. for the position uh, quarterback who were black, but they would not play them. They had a mediocre white quarterback and they kept him front and center, even at the expense of the entire team's winnings. Um, They recently changed coaches several times. The coach that they had for years who could not bring them to a victory was a white coach. 
So he finally left and the black coach came and he only was there for one year. Uh, and because he couldn't win any games in that one year, they gave him the boot <laughs> and replaced him. So he was like, you know, it's really odd that this other man was given chance after chance after chance, screwing up, you know, left and right, making the most horrible, stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. But yet he stayed for years in the mm-hmm. same position. Um, I'd have to say, though, there is a belief that when you meet Black kids, they automatically don't come from two-parent households. Um, first of all, you can be in a two-parent household and have two crappy parents. Yes. <laughs> that's just, that's why. Yes. Uh, so that just, that's not a guarantee of mm-hmm. you being a functional human being just because both of your parents may have lived in the same house at the same time. Uh, if they were abusive, if they were neglectful, if they just weren't good parents, that's going to have lasting effects on you. Um, so it literally is basically just an assumption because you have really great people that came from really bad situations where they had one parent or no parents. Uh, they were in foster care, they were raised by relatives and they turned out impeccably. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have some people that were in two parent homes and they are, <sighs> they're people you don't want to be around or associate with. So yeah, that is an inherently racist idea that we do discuss amongst ourselves, um, you know, how um, the Black family, I guess, disintegrated um, and the reasonings for that and maybe how we can mitigate that. But at the same time, I really, I can't say that two-parent households were abnormal to me growing up. Uh, my own family situation, you know, my parents, my biological parents were always present. They were, they were young, they messed up, such as life. Uh, so I did, I was indeed raised by my grandparents, which I guess you could consider a two-parent household. But most of my cousins, <laughs> their parents were married. They had a mom and a dad in the house. Uh, yeah, people get divorced, things happen. But if I can't say that I saw in my own family a lot of instances of single parents. Um, so this idea that most Black kids, which is another thing people like to go in those comments and put, well, you know, they don't have a dad in the house. Mm. So, yeah, that's the first thing. And it's just like, that's not true. From uh, years back, they did a study and they compared fathers from different races to see how they interacted with their children and you know this idea of black men don't they don't care about their kids they don't stick around for their kids this and that they just drop the babies and leave is statistically not true black fathers were actually found to be the most involved with their children bathing them helping with homework uh feeding them playing with them interacting with them so that was it's almost like some people either (laughs) ignored the study, never heard of it. I don't know what it is because nothing really changed. But to hear that Black fathers are indeed present in their children's lives, um, it was quite refreshing. Mm. Um, And 
I don't know. It's just this idea that we're dysfunctional. And granted, we are financially, uh, socioeconomically, we are disadvantaged. And that does play a role in how our family structures are. Because when you have parents that are never there because they're trying to make a living, that also affects children. Um, it's not necessarily all the time that someone is just a deadbeat. Sometimes circumstances take people away. You have the fact that Black men are much more likely to be incarcerated mm-hmm. in the United States. That is, that is, he's not willingly leaving his children if he's, you know, in prison. He's, he's in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it, it's a very nasty stereotype. Mm-hmm. And it contributes to dehumanizing us and making us look less civilized. Because we can't even form coherent, cohesive families. Um, I don't know. It's just, it never made sense. Because I'm like, I know all of these Black people who grew up in two parent homes. (laughs) And I've known quite a few people of other races who did it. Yeah. So it's not an exclusive thing to Black people to have one parent home. Yeah. And all, all the black fathers that I know, and I know a few. I mean, you know, I'm married to a black man who has a lot of black friends. We're, we're in our 40s. Most of them are fathers. And really genuine, and I don't think this is a reflection of where Junior grew up. Junior grew up in a relatively, um, well, it, it, it wasn't a very middle-class area. It was a working-class area. There was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of all, all sorts of issues. But these are all really good dads. Like, I can genuinely say they're great dads. Uh, and as you say, probably more involved in their lives. Actually, you know, they sometimes when I look at like the wealthy middle class people around me and the fathers, they're there, they're present, but they're often, you know, playing golf on the weekends or going to the pub with their friends. And like all the all of Junior's friends, all of the black fathers I know, they are very present in their children's lives, even the ones that didn't stay together with, uh, you know, and uh, they're not married, they're not together anymore, but still really present in their children's lives. So it's such a, it's such a, it's such a nasty stereotype, as you say. Also the stereotype that black women, you know, aren't educated, aren't smart. I I saw the statistic in the US, they are Mm -hmm. the most educated, black women are the most educated group in all of the US. Um, which says something, right? Because to be black and to be a woman in the United States of America is to be a tremendous, at, at the most disadvantaged. And to think that actually in spite of that, we have the most, you know, educated in terms of higher education group in all of the US, like that's a miracle. But I guess that also takes a tremendous toll on women who, like you said, are having to work 10 times as hard just to achieve the same things because you're coming you know at such a disadvantage you're so far behind uh you know you everyone else has such a head start so yeah you have to do all of these things and you've said you got a code switch and you have to you know you said well I'm just used to it I'm just used to it so I just do it now I just know I have to behave a certain way and do a certain thing so I just, I've just got used to it but I don't think that your body understands like you know I don't think your body's used to it I think your body is just like this is really exhausting why am I constantly stressed why am I always on edge why do I always have to be hyper vigilant your body is feeling the effects of that whether or not you psychologically have become used to it right your body is still struggling and then you have you know something that Jessica was sort of saying like there comes a point where everybody uh she was talking about 2020 and Black Lives Matter and 
all of a sudden everyone turned around and said, black women are going to save the world. And I, I remember thinking, oh, crap, I know I said that. I know I've said that at least once in my life. Black women can fix everything because black women are so capable and competent. And and she kind of, she said, she, she said something like, I want to be a basic black woman. Just basic. <laughs> Just yes, voting it in an average, regular, like, you know, like, and the way she talks about it, it's hilarious. She's got such a brilliant sense of humor. But the way she talks about it, I was like, I, I really heard that. It really struck me, and I wonder if it resonates with you as well. It's actually like you're such a success story as a group of women, but at what cost? And wouldn't it be nice to just not be successful and just be average? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I just I know there was a, uh, it's a, it's a, I know it's on uh, partially on Instagram, probably on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter, so I don't know. Um, this movement of Black women being luxurious and soft um and black women saying you know i'm tired of being strong i'm tired of being independent i'm tired of having to carry the world on my shoulders i want to be like every other woman in the world that isn't black you know i sometimes you know i want a husband to pay my bills (laughs) you know i want a partner i don't want to be expected to play every role Mm -hmm. and to have a back that doesn't bend or break Mm -hmm. you know i want to 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 be a stereotypical woman, mm-hmm. I guess you could call it. And I could understand because, you know, I mean, Black women even got to the point where, you know, these anthems about being independent, but it's just like, that's because that's what's expected of you. That's mm-hmm. what you're told and conditioned because I guess your parents fear that, that unless they condition you that way, you're not going to survive this world. So they want you to be strong. They want you to be independent so that you'll live. Uh, but it, <laughs> not everybody wants that. And if you go in the opposite direction, you know, you'll get negativity too sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times actually. Um, they have names for women that don't necessarily want to be strong and independent. They call them gold diggers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, I completely understand. You just, you don't want to have so much pressure all the time. You don't want for everything to depend on you. You don't want to carry the weight of the world. You just want to live. You know, you want to be able to enjoy your life and live peacefully and not have, not be faced with such adverse adversity. So I I completely understand that. It's just like, it's tiresome. Like there's always a problem for you to solve and you just want to stop. Yeah. (laughs) Why? Yeah. You just want to stop and you just want to rest and have peace. Yeah. And just quiet time in your mind. Mm. I I know her, you know, her saying, you know, your body realizes that your mind doesn't. And I never connected that. I always thought, obviously your mind and your body are connected. But to me, as long as your body's trugging along, you're okay. I just, I'm still coming to terms with the fact that your mental health can, like, have physical manifestations. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Because for so long, you're, you don't think about it. Because yeah. I guess you have to separate the two to keep going. Yes. So, yeah, I have to say that it is, I mean, if we have all of these illnesses at higher rates, it, it makes perfect sense. 
It does. And you not just irresponsible when we eat soul food, <laughs> you know, or we're inherently fatter. It, yeah. it's, it's layers. So first of all, in terms of soul food, I need someone to do the study that proves that soul food is better for you. I'm sure it is. I bet you, I'm willing to bet money that we could do a study that showed that actually soul food was good for you. And actually, you know, there's a study that shows that chicken soup um, actually does have healing properties. I'm I'm sure we could do one about soul food as well. Um, because, Because there is something about food, actually, and food is much more than just sustenance. There is something about the comfort of food. There is something about the pleasure and the, you know, the the, the relaxation you can find in food. Everyone who disagrees with me can shut up because that's just true. And I know it. I just I feel it in my bones. But I, um, you know, I was thinking a lot about the body and the mind. And, you know, the biggest lie we've ever been told is that they're completely separate things. And literally, that's not true because your mind is just is your brain which is attached to the rest of your body through nerves and is basically signaling to the rest of your body and it's you know in many ways your adrenal cortex which sits above your kidneys you've got two of them but you know they're they're powered by your brain and so what is physically happening to you what you're experiencing is happening inside of your body and you've got your your you have psychologically you've had to tell yourself the story this is life it's what you were told when you were a kid. You know, your grandmother, I love her. We have to talk about her before we end. Like we have to have at least one saying today, one little story about her. Every time we talk, we'll do one story because she's amazing. And there's a lot of wisdom she has to offer us. Um, but, you know, in preparation from the world, you know, you had to learn. We have to teach our children. This is how the world's going to be. And this is how you're going to have to be to cope with the world. And they learned code switching at a very young age. And 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 like you say, you're walking through, you're literally actually walking through the world thinking that this is dangerous. Wherever I am, it is dangerous. I could be killed for being black. I could be driving along and stopped and shot for being black. I could you know, my doctor could be literally trying to kill me because I'm black, giving me a drug that is going to kill me because I'm black. And so, like, it's a terrifying world you live in and you've just had to learn. Uh, like, this is, I can't just constantly sit here worrying about it. So I've accepted it. But your body has not accepted it. Your body is just like, this is a lot. We're, we're going through a lot, Keisha. We need to sit down. We need to rest. We need to recover. But like you say, how how will you do that like how will you physically sit down and rest and recover it's not possible for you there is no option to just chill you know and I mean Jessica was making jokes and talking about drinking Chardonnay in the middle of the day and like buying furniture from thrift stores and and you know and like (laughs) like all that all that apparently Right. This is. I. I was just like. You're right. You do deserve to drink. Um, you know, drink during the day. Day drinking should be everybody's. You know, it should be everybody's basic human right, and it's not. Um, and it's really making me think. Like you said, the associations that we have that we see. You know, when we say, "Oh, there's more black people with diabetes," I, I. I often just think, "Yeah, no shit, Sherlock." I mean, of course there is. Uh, stress. Ever heard of that? Like, yeah, it's like to do soul food. Soul food's actually genuinely like quite well balanced, right? Like there's a very good balance between vegetables and carbs and all this stuff. It's all the macronutrients you could possibly need. No, no, it's not soul food. It's stress that is causing this increased incidence. And then there is, you know, we love to, I love to talk about it with you. We go, we, this new drug that's come out. And in England, they just, they just, you know, made it legal in NHS England. I don't think in Scotland, but they basically, 
said that uh, you have to have a body mass index of over 35, which is higher in the states it's over 30. And all that, or you have to meet certain criteria and have a body mass index of 30. And then they do this brilliant bit where they go, well, uh, black, and they name other races, but black first, uh, people are more at risk of quote unquote obesity races related to diseases. So it is fair to give it to them at, at much lower weights. So if your weight is 35, between 30 and 35, if you're black, it's 27.5 to 32.5. Like, I have read every single study on this drug and every single one of them, there wasn't a, like the, the percentage of black people this was studied on was so low, 75% at least. Some of the studies, 90% of them were, were white women. What, there are no black people in the studies. You couldn't possibly make this up. This is just medical racism like just blatantly like just on a piece of paper out there for all to see here's a bit of medical racism for you we don't care what are you going to do about it you're not going to do anything about it and it it baffles it like you said I'm brought back to the fact that I am baffled that this is reality that this is it's surreal I can't you know I'm having conversations with people going like you know this is wrong oh yeah yeah it's wrong but but it's still happening what on god's green earth like how could it still be happening um and and that's how i feel as someone who isn't actually physically impacted by this so i imagine it's a million times worse for you before we go tell us a little bit about the woman that raised you and like a story you can pick any story i'm not going to tell you which one i want um maybe next time i'll request (laughs) yes just tell us about that um, she was tough, mm. <laughs> but she, had, uh, she was born during the Great Depression in Mississippi. <laughs> so she was born in the South, a black woman to a blind father, and her mother obviously was poor. Um, so she came up during the rough times, but, but she managed. Um, and she, oh, there's so many stories about. I'm a boomer. <laughs> okay, I want to tell you what I want. Today, can we do the KKK one? Today, let's do that one. Uh, Go. Well, which one? Okay, um, pick one. I don't mind any of them. They're all good. <laughs> there was one where, I think it was, she, where, you know, helped with the, the voting when they were trying to get voting rights. So I know there was one where they had threatened to burn down her house with her children inside. She had um, there was one <laughs> where they, okay, they would go to the stores and that's where, you know, she had a farm at one point where she was able to grow her own food, but obviously there's still things she needed from the stores. Not to mention, you know, there was not, she didn't live on that farm her entire life. Uh, so, you know, she had to provide for her. So there was one point where they had told the black people don't go to the stores. Um, that would essentially render a lot of them unable to get food for their family. <laughs> well, my grandmother was probably five feet tall. At the time, she had kids, so she wasn't the 120 or so pounds she started off at. Um, she was really skinny when she started having kids. And she just wasn't a very big, she wasn't a big woman. She wasn't an imposing presence physically um, until, you know, she got older and gained weight and things such as that. But she went 
to the store anyway. They had told her, don't come. And her husband was like, don't go. And she was like, my kids need food. Mm -hmm. So she put a knife in her waist and her skirt band. I don't think my grandmother wore pants. She would wear pants under her skirt. She wore skirts over. So she took a knife and a waistband and she went to the store anyway. (laughs) Well, the people there knew that my grandmother was not afraid. Uh, She later told us that she was probably technically not completely mentally right. She said because herself now would have told her not to do any of those things she did back then, but she did. So she went to the store anyway, and there was like white guys standing in front of the doors guarding to keep them from going into the stores. And she said she went and they had like a stare off. She was like, you know, I'm going here to buy food for my kids. Well, she kind of had a reputation for not, for, for being fearless. And I guess they decided that they didn't want any trouble. Uh, because she didn't exactly hide the knife. I think she had it where it was visible. She was like, you know, I'm going to get food or there's going to be a problem. And she went in, they moved aside and let her into the store and she got what she needed and left. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another one where they were trying to block them from, I believe it was registering to vote. And I think that she was actually, I don't know if she was taking other people to help them register, but they were actually blocking the way. And I guess they were doing it with their bodies. So she was like, well, we're going to vote one way or the other. So she sped her car up. And when they saw that she wasn't going to stop, they got <laughs> I love her so much. <laughs> it's like something from a movie. Just like, I'm just going to speed up and see what happens. She, I wish that I, I feel like I got quite a few things from her, but I wish that I had that fearlessness and that, that fire because she, you do. Mm-mm. She looked danger in the face and she was like, danger, I'm the dangerous <laughs> She did, but she, I mean, this is this is for those that are outside. This is the 1960s, late 60s, Mississippi. So to put it into context, it was life or death, quite literally at the time, right? Like this is yeah. civil rights movement at its peak, and 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 so you know, it, it was. You have every every ounce of that fearlessness and fire in you, but it manifests itself differently because you know it's not. 1969 and it's not the civil rights movement but actually what she was fighting for then you're still fighting for now it's it's not changed it's no better you know okay fine like you know you can vote but then there's gerrymandering and there's all sorts of issues so really it's it's like yeah you know it's changed but it's just become more it's just it's it's dressed up different but I see you fighting you are still the fearless the you've the fearless grandchild of this remarkable woman who raised you perfectly. And um, I just love hearing stories about her just because I just have visions of her. Like I've seen pictures, so I, I, I can actually physically visualize her and I can just imagine this like little, little short woman, but fearless and tough and smart and, and sassy. But yeah, and she lived, she lived long to be fair to her, to give her her credit, but her body paid the price for that. 
right? Like yeah. for what she was able to give and what she was able to do and for her part in history, because literally involved in, you know, getting people to vote. This was this was an entire movement and she was part of this movement. So she achieved so much. And actually the, c- the country and I would argue even the world owes a debt of gratitude to her and everyone else like her, you know, who doesn't get named, you know, just, um, of course, Martin Luther King, amazing man. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that he's a not, but it wasn't just him, right? It wasn't just a few people that we know about. It was all the people that were involved and the whole world owes people like your grandmother uh, a debt of gratitude. But I guess towards the end, like, you know, she felt it in her body. She was weary and she was tired. And that was the price he yeah. paid. And um, I just love her so much. <laughs> just, just, I just, I think about it all the time. I almost feel like sometimes, you know, I can almost hear, because I can hear you, I hear your voice. And so I can hear her voice um, telling me to just get a grip. That's generally what I hear, get a grip. It could be worse, <laughs> could be worse. And she's right, it could be worse. <sighs> well, this was fun. I, I, I'm not even going to edit it. That was fun. Yeah, we'll do this again soon. Um, normally, there's a little there's a little girl somewhere in the background who loves to interrupt and talk to me. So we're going to have to. I'm going to stop the recording and then I'm going to talk to her because I miss her. So I'm going to press end now. One second. Thank you. Okay. Wait. No. Let's do the professional bit. Thank you very much for being a, a guest on today's podcast. Um, My pleasure. Uh, nice <laughs> you did that so well <laughs> I will look forward to speaking to you again in the near future okay right I'm pressing stop as for me check out my website www.fatdoctor.co.uk for more information about what I'm up to and what I have on offer folks creating and maintaining a podcast requires long hours and lots of cash to burn i love this podcast i love pouring my heart and soul into everything that i do but it isn't always easy so if you'd like to support me and the work that i'm doing i have a patreon page all the details are available on my website and in the show notes thank you for listening and i look forward to catching up with you next week